it was the hardest moment in Jesus' life. The last 12 hours of Jesus' life, he would experience incomprehensible pain, and he knew that it would come. We're reminded of a couple passages. Luke chapter 22, just a few moments before, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. The text tells us in Luke chapter 22 and verse 41, He knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. In a similar passage, the Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Have you ever thought very deeply about this phrase? Take this cup from me. Yet not my will but yours be done. Jesus knew what was coming and he was willing to endure it. He submitted to God in suffering agony in order to save us from our own sins. Sometimes we grumble because we think it will be hard to submit to God's will. But Jesus truly suffered. He knew what it would be like to be crucified, but he did it anyway because of his compassion for you and me. And we see Jesus' compassion demonstrated at the height of that agony. When at that moment, He brings comfort to another. The thief on the cross. This precious moment is often missed because the story is used to argue that baptism is unnecessary. But can this passage be used to legitimately demonstrate baptism is unnecessary? If that's not the right use of this passage, how can we return this passage to its right place? The compassion of Jesus. Let's consider then whether or not this passage can legitimately be used to demonstrate that baptism is unnecessary. Consider again the text of Luke chapter 23, verse 39 following. One of the criminals who were being hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed we are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Is it a correct use of this passage to use it to say that baptism is not necessary? 
Occasionally we may find ourselves in a discussion with a religious friend about the necessity of baptism. And they throw out, well, what about the thief on the cross? Are we at a loss of words as to how to respond to that statement? What is the point of the story of the thief on the cross? The reality is we don't know whether this man was baptized or not. Consider the work of John the Baptist. How did John begin his ministry? What was John busy doing? Consider what Matthew tells us in, in Matthew chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. The text there says, beginning actually in verse 5, Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. What do we learn from Matthew's account? Look also at, at verse 11. Verse 11 says, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. As we look at Matthew's account, what we learn is that John the Baptist was, was out preaching and teaching, and people were coming to him to be baptized for the repentance of sins, John says himself. And people were confessing their sins. And Matthew describes it this way, that all Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan were coming to John to be baptized. Consider Mark's account of John's work. In Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, John tells us something very similar to what Matthew has just said. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Mark tells us that John was preaching a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People were coming and being baptized by John and confessing their sins. Preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, the text says. And again, Mark tells us that all Jerusalem and all Judea were coming to John to be baptized. Consider how Luke summarizes this work in Luke chapter 3 and verse 3. Luke tells us there in Luke 3 and verse 3 that he came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke defines it a little bit differently. He says that John went throughout all the district of the Jordan, but his preaching was the same, a message of, repent, of baptism for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All Jerusalem, all Judea, all the district of Jordan. That was John's work. Consider Jesus' work. 
John tells us as we look in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 3 and verse 22, that after Jesus is baptized by John and after his conversation with Nicodemus, John tells us in John chapter 3 and verse 22, After these things Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing John also was in Anan near Salim because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized. So both Jesus and John the Baptist are working and preaching and teaching and baptizing. And people continuously came to John or to Jesus to be baptized. But Jesus begins preaching and teaching and baptizing and making more disciples than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's disciples apparently become jealous for John over the work that Jesus is doing. Notice John 3, 25. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist's disciples are so upset, so jealous that Jesus is effectively baptizing and making more disciples than John the Baptist. They come to him complaining about this. And yet John's response is, look, I'm happy because I came. I was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so word begins to spread that Jesus is making more disciples and baptizing more disciples than even John the Baptist. Notice John chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. So word gets out that Jesus is baptizing more people, more than John the Baptist. And the Pharisees hear about this, and this puts pressure on Jesus, so much so that Jesus has to leave Judea and go into Galilee. Well, what is the point in all of this? As we look at the work of Jesus and John, we find that John is out baptizing so many people that the Jewish leadership have taken notice of John's work. That's in Mark chapter 1. But when Jesus himself begins his ministry, he soon surpasses the mass of people that John was baptizing. All Judea, all Jerusalem, all the district around the Jordan. And yet the word starts to spread that Jesus is baptizing more people than John the Baptist, so much so that the Pharisees and the the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem get upset about it, and Jesus has to leave the area. Is it possible that this thief on the cross was somewhere in those crowds? That perhaps he heard the preaching and teaching of John, or maybe he heard the preaching and teaching of Jesus, but maybe he was one of those of all Judea, all Jerusalem, all the district around the Jordan that chose to be baptized. As we take a closer look at Luke chapter 23, 
and the story of the thief on the cross, what can we really know about this man? We know that he knows who Jesus is and that he knows that Jesus is innocent. Notice again chapter 23, verse 41. The man says, And indeed we are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. The man knows who Jesus is. He knows what Jesus' work has been. He knows that Jesus is innocent. But he goes one step further. Look at verse 42. And he was saying, Jesus... Remember me when you come in your kingdom. This man acknowledges and believes Jesus to be the Messiah. He believes Jesus to be the anointed one. He believes Jesus to be the one who would reestablish the Davidic kingdom and reestablish the prominence of Israel by sitting on David's throne. Does this man seem to have an aha moment in which as he's looking around at what's happening to Jesus, ah, this must be the Son of God. Compare that to the centurion man of Matthew 54. Matthew tells us that the centurion and those keeping heart over Jesus when the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, truly this was the Son of God. That's an aha moment. When you look around at what's happening, you say, Sir, this was the Son of God. Certainly this is the Messiah. But when we look at Luke chapter 20, 42, doesn't have an aha moment. He's not looking around at what's happening to Jesus and, and coming to the conclusion this is the Messiah. This man has faith that Jesus' kingdom is coming. And his request is that remember him. When Jesus comes to the kingdom. What kind of a king was this man? What was this man expecting? Even though Jesus is in the process of dying, this man has faith in Jesus' coming kingdom. So what kind of a kingdom was it? Was it to be a physical kingdom? If this man believes Jesus is going to establish a physical kingdom on the earth and reestablish the kingdom of David, then that man believes, as Jesus is dying on the cross, that something immediate is going to happen. Where Jesus gets down off that cross, throws out the Roman government, the Roman authorities, the Roman legions that are in Syria and Judea, and brings Israel to prominence once again. As Jesus is hours from dying, this man believes that Jesus is going to accomplish all that. Maybe he doesn't believe in the physical kingdom. Maybe he believes in a spiritual kingdom. And if he does, he has a deeper understanding than even Jesus' own disciples do. Because in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus has died and is buried and has been raised again and has spent 40 days with his apostles... Luke records in Acts chapter 1 that his disciples ask him, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They were looking for that physical kingdom. But this man knows what Jesus said to Pilate in John chapter 18, that my kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. 
He has a deeper understanding than even those men who have traveled with Jesus for three years, seen His miracles, heard His preaching and His teaching, seen His compassion and kindness. This man's faith is great. If he's never seen Jesus before, never heard Jesus, but now is his very first time to know Jesus, to believe in Jesus, what's the compelling evidence to bring him to that point as they're both hanging on the cross? Was it because Jesus' disciples had abandoned him in the garden? Only Peter and John follow Jesus from a distance to see what's going to happen to him? Even now, as Jesus is on the cross, only John is there next to the mother of Jesus? Could it be that this man's persuaded because his disciples, his followers, have fled? Maybe that was the compelling evidence. Or maybe it was the fact that Jesus was tried both by the Jewish authorities and the chief priests, and then by Herod, and by Pilate, And two of the three were going to crucify him and the other one did nothing to free Jesus. Maybe that's what's compelled this man to believe that Jesus is the Messiah who's going to reestablish the kingdom of David. No, that wasn't the compelling evidence. Maybe the compelling evidence was the fact that Jesus was was scourged and and flogged as as, 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 as was the Roman custom preparing someone to be crucified beating them and scourging them to the edge of death. Maybe that's what convinced this man. Oh yeah, this guy's going to establish a kingdom. This guy's going to be a king. This guy's going to throw out the Romans. Or maybe it's because Jesus is facing imminent death. As the nails have now pierced his wrists and his feet, nailing him to the cross. Maybe that's what has convinced this man that this is the Messiah. You see, as we think about this thief on the cross and what he's looking at, what is there, if this man had not been a believer in Jesus before, would suddenly have convinced him that this man was the Messiah? When we consider what we can learn of this man, what can we say? Is it likely that he had a previous faith and perhaps was even baptized before he came to the cross? I believe we can make that case. But even if we don't argue that case, is it possible that he had a previous faith in Jesus and perhaps had been baptized? If we're open and honest with ourselves, I think we would have to admit that, yes, it's at least possible that he had a previous faith in Jesus and perhaps had been baptized at some point, either by Jesus or John the Baptist. But can we really be so confident as to say beyond any certainty, or with all certainty, that this man had never had faith in Jesus until this moment, and that he had never been baptized? But you see, that's not what this passage is about. There's never discussion about those things in this passage. This man at some point has been a thief in his life. And he has sinned just like all of us. But just like the Samaritan woman, he has faith in God 
in Christ. And as he's hanging there at a moment in agony, Jesus offers him a compassionate moment, a compassionate thought, a compassionate promise. Let's return this passage to that right place. Let's leave behind the misuse of the story and find its great significance, Jesus' compassion. If this story of the thief isn't about a path to eternal salvation or the role of baptism, what is it about? Again, we say the compassion of Jesus. Think about what Jesus has endured. The text cogently says, In Luke chapter 23 and verse 33. Then they came to the place called the skull and they crucified him. They crucified him. The Roman crucifixion typically involved scourging to bring someone close to death, to the edge of death. In fact, Matthew records that that's exactly what happened in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 26. The Pilate had Jesus scourged. Roman crucifixion continued with the victim being forced to carry the crossbeam of the cross upon which he'll be crucified. To the place will he be crucified. And as a form of humiliation, they would have that individual carry that crossbeam from the place of trial to the place of persecution or to the place of the crucifixion. As if to send a message to all the other non-Roman citizens in, in this conquered area. You better not rebel against Rome. But Jesus is so wearied from all that he has endured in the last 12 hours that he's unable to carry it the whole way. And Simon of Cyrene must be tasked with the work of carrying the cross the rest of the way. Luke chapter 23 and verse 26. When they arrive at the place of crucifixion, Jesus is stripped down to his loincloth placed on the cross. Nails are placed on his wrists and on his ankles and driven into the cross. Then the cross is raised and lowered into its place. And Jesus, with his freshly scourged back, must now push himself up and down on the coarse grain of the cross. He's in agony. His breathing is difficult, as it's designed to be, to lead to gradual suffocation. Muscles begin to cramp due to a lack of oxygen in his body, and fluid begins to build around Jesus' heart. While the physical pain is real, Jesus feels the intended public humiliation of Roman crucifixion. Verse 35 tells us that the people stood by looking on and even the rulers, that is the Pharisees, the priests, were sneering at him saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Verse 36 says that the soldiers mocked him. Verse 37, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Matthew tells us in Matthew 27, verses 39 through 40, that even passers-by were hurling abuse at Jesus, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and come down from the cross. 
course, here in Luke chapter 23 and verse 39. One of the very thieves being crucified with Jesus hurls the same abuse at him. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. In the midst of all this pain, all this agony, the physical pain, the emotional pain, the humiliation that Jesus is facing as He's on that cross, while Jesus is enduring all this, this man, this other man, this thief on the cross, who has been brutalized in much the same way, just a few feet away, cries out to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. This thief demonstrates his faith. He demonstrates his humility by asking Jesus to remember him in his kingdom. He acknowledges his sin by rebuking the other thief and telling him we're suffering justly according to what we deserve because of our deeds. And Jesus in all of his suffering could have ignored the man He could have dismissed the man. But instead he says, This day you shall be with me in paradise. Paradise is a Greek word borrowed from the Persians that means garden or park. When we think about where Jesus went on that day that he died, Acts chapter 2 verse 31, Peter tells us, that Jesus was left in Hades, but he was not allowed to remain in Hades. Hades is that place of the dead that the Greeks believed that that's where your soul goes when you die. And Peter quotes the Old Testament, quotes the book of Psalms, I will not abandon your soul to Hades. And Jesus was raised from the dead, was Peter's point in Acts chapter 2. Also in Luke, in Luke chapter 16, verse 25 through 26, we read the story of Lazarus and the rich man. They both die. And the text tells us that the man, the rich man in Hades, is able to look across a schism and see the poor man, see Lazarus in a place of comfort. When Jesus tells this thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus' promise isn't a platitude. He's telling the man, I know that you are in anguish like I am, but hold on for just a short time in this agony. This agony will be gone, it will be over, and you will be with me in a place of comfort, free from all this pain. The glory of this story is not about whether or not one needs to be baptized. It's not even discussed in the text. This is violence to the text. But in this text of violence, we find the compassion of Christ. A man with faith, though with great sin in his life, with humility, calls out to a Christ full of compassion. Do you need to call out to Christ? Do you need to call out to the one able to save you from your sins? The the one able to bring you to a place of comfort in paradise? 
do you need to call out to Christ? To be united with Jesus in His death and His burial and His resurrection. United with Him in these things through baptism. Crucifying your old body of sin as you are baptized. Raised to live a new life for God in Christ. If that's what you want to do this morning, won't you come as together we stand and sing.